as Hawk Harrelson once said, you can put it on the board, yes. And as Harry Carey said, because it's root, root, root for the Cubbies. If they don't win, it's a shame. What's up, everybody? Mac here, welcoming you to a very Chicago episode of Championship or a Bust. The 1906 World Series covers both sides of the Windy City with the White Sox and the Cubs and is the first crosstown rivalry World Series. Can't wait for 2000, by the way. Uh, you'll be hearing quite a bit about both of these teams in the near future episodes as well, but not so much after that. Sorry, Chicago fans. Enjoy the content while you have it. But we're here with myself, Zach, and Josh, and we're going to get right into it. So let's head right over to Josh with a stadium analysis. All right. Well, as Mac just said, this is the World Series between Chicago Cubs and Chicago White Sox. So didn't really have that far to travel. Didn't really need any travel days. Lucky them. Uh, the Chicago Cubs played at West Side Grounds. It was the second stadium known as West Side Park. It opened in 1893 and underwent some renovations in about 1905, where they added some private uh, box seats on top of the grandstand behind home plate to make the stadium a little bit bigger, making a little bit more money. Uh, the stadium didn't really have anything too special about it. It was about 340 down the lines, but in left center field, it was about 560 feet. So oh another God. one of those bathtub type of stadiums like the Polo Grounds, where for some reason center field is just absolutely huge. And then the White Sox played at Southside Park the third which was the most famous of the Southside Parks, which was built in 1900 and was the home of the White Sox for about 10 years before they left for Comiskey Park, which was named after the team's owner, in the middle of the 1910 season. And then the Chicago American Giants, a Negro Leagues team, ended up moving in and played there for about 30 years. And the park ended up getting renamed to Shoreling Park when that team played there. Uh, Southside Park uh, – go ahead, Mike. Sorry, it's interesting because you have two of these part, the two of these teams that have very well known stadiums, Comiskey Park and Wrigley Field, and neither one of them were even built yet. So it's just kind of cool that it's weird to hear uh, the Cubs not playing in Wrigley, yeah, and the old time White Sox not playing at Comiskey. So it just kind of throws you for a loop for a second. But go ahead, continue. Yeah, definitely crazy there. Um, and Southside Park, pretty much the same capacity as the West Side grounds, and uh, nothing really too special about this park. You know, pretty standard, uh, 330 down the left field line, 345 down the right field line, about 420 in center field. Uh, the only weird thing here is there was about a 20-foot wall in right center. What? Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a big one. You got to hit it pretty hard to get it over that. But a pretty standard stadium. I mean, a lot of these stadiums were, you know, in the times especially fit to, you know, fit in the layout of an already built, you know, road system and city yep. system, so... That's why you get some of these weird uh, dimensions out here. I love the symmetry and um, West Side grounds. <laughs> you know, 340 both lines and then just a deep center field. That's really funny to me. Yeah, definitely that bathtub shit. But yeah, now, uh, Zach, you want to talk about the teams a little bit? Yes, sir. Uh, so again, just um, some mini uh, thoughts. What this series is known for today. Again, we already mentioned for a Subway Series, and it's also one of the biggest upsets in World Series history as the White Sox go on to beat the Cubs in six games. Um, but obviously, let's talk about the Cubs first. They were the better team. 116-win season. They share the record with the 2001 Mariners for the most wins in the regular season. And the Cubs did it in a 154-game season, by the way, which gives them a 763 winning percentage, which I don't really think we'll ever see again, honestly. Not today. Not with the parody in the league today. But like the Mariners, they lost. 
right? Choke artists. <laughs> Max going to touch on this a little bit later, but they're led by one of the most famous double play combinations of all time, Joe Tinker, Johnny Evers, and Three Finger Brown is one of their famous pitchers. And the White Sox had a, you know, 90-93 win season, nothing to scoff at, but obviously not 116 wins. But they were known as the Hitless Wonders due to their American League worst batting average at 230. Imagine making the World Series with a 230 batting average. Is that the Yankees? It sounds like them. Maybe they hit some home runs to work with it? <laughs> um, like, as we know, the White Sox ultimately ended up outpitching the Cubs in the first two wins and actually outhit them 26-14 to 14 in the last two games. Still, the White Sox only needed to hit 198 as a team, and that was enough to beat the Cubs. Insane. Game one, and as Sherm previously mentioned, um, there are no travel days, so these games take place on consecutive days. So Tuesday, October 9th, home of the Cubs. Uh, White Sox end up taking game one away. White Sox starter Nick Altrock ended up facing Cubs pitcher Mordecai Three Finger Brown. We'll definitely talk about Three Finger Brown a little later. Brown posted a 1.04 ERA and had 26 wins in 1906. Both pitchers threw complete game four hitters and only gave up one earned run each. The Cubs gave up an unearned run in the fifth when Brown botched the ground ball. And the teams traded a run in the sixth, and the White Sox would take game one on the road. Game two, Wednesday, October 10th, Southside Park, home of the White Sox. Cubs would end up winning this one on the road 7-1. Ed Ruleback took them out for the Cubs against Doc White for the White Sox. Ruleback ended up pitching the first one-hitter in World Series history. White Sox only scored one earned, unearned run in the fifth, while the Cubs scored four runs in the first three innings, all unearned and would tack on three earned runs in the later innings off a reliever to secure the win. Game three on Thursday. Back at the Cubs, White Sox would again win on the road, 3-0. Pitchers duel as White Sox starter Big Ed Walsh apparently threw a good spitball, threw a two-hitter with both hits coming in the first inning, and struck out 12. So giving up two hits in the first, lights out the rest of the way. Third baseman, George Rowe cleared the bases for the White Sox with a triple in the sixth, and the White Sox took the win 3-0, and the series 2-1 back home. Game four on that Friday. Cubs end up winning 1-0. Another pitcher's duel here. Starters for game one were back in the mound after two days rest. Three-finger Brown and Nick Altrock would put on a clinic, and the game was finished in just 96 minutes. No, picks, no pitch clock required. That's crazy. 96 minutes. Yeah, 96 minutes, man. Brown would throw a two-hitter, and the Cubs' only run would come out come off a two-out single in the seventh inning. Cubs stole the game 1-0 and even the series at two apiece. Game 5 on Saturday, home of the Cubs, and the White Sox would take it in an explosion 8-6. Wild affair, total of 18 hits, 10 walks, 6 errors in a World Series game. Two-hit batsmen, three wild pitches, and a steal of the home, steal of home. The Cubs allowed a first-inning run to the Sox, then scored three unearned runs on two Sox errors to take an early lead. The White Sox ended up tying the game in the third on George Davis's steal of home on the front end of that double steal. A steal of home? Yep. Man, I wish you saw some of that today. You might know. Who knows? With all this new, the new bases and stuff, who knows, man? Looked like Lindor was about to yesterday when I was at the game. <laughs> nah, he's a wild child, but he'll never do it. He's not fast enough. And then took the lead for good with a four-run rally in the fourth and held on to victory to take a 3-2 lead in the series. All right. Game six on Sunday. 
White Sox are home, and they would win it at home. White Sox win the game 8-3 and the World Series four games to two on their home turf. Probably would be the last time um, this happens. Spoiler alert for a long, long time. <laughs> Three-finger Brown back, on, back out there on the mound after one day's rest, and the White Sox actually finally got to him and didn't let him out of the second inning. The Sox ended up battering him for seven runs on eight hits and got a solid start from Doc White, only giving him three runs. This game remains the only time Chicago White Sox have clinched a postseason series in their home ballpark. Just a quick fun facts. The most recent World Series to feature two franchises that have never before appeared in the World Series. Um, and actually, this actually can't be duplicated because the Nationals made it in 2019. And that only left the Mariners uh, left who haven't been to the World Series yet. So this will never happen again, at least in baseball. And Doc White also recorded the first ever World Series save in Game 5. Alright, so we will head on to the Hall of Famers from each side. We have two on the Chicago White Sox and four on the Chicago Cubs. So beginning with the world champions, we have George Davis, who was inducted 92 years after the series in 1998. And he never received a Hall of Fame vote prior to his election. He had 2,600 hits, exactly 2,665, with a 295 career batting average. Had a good World Series. Um, four for 13, 308 average, three doubles, and an 846 OPS. Uh, we also have Ed Walsh, as Zach mentioned, who was elected in 1946 through a Veterans Committee. He has the all-time record for a career earned run average at 1.82. So a career ERA of 1.82. With that in mind, he led the league in ERA twice and strikeouts twice and wins once. So low ERAs was obviously something with the era, but he was still the lowest for a career. Um, but for anybody who may have watched our Hall of Fame episode, you may be wondering, did he lead anything three times? He did not lead ERA three times. He did not lead strikeouts three times. Johan Santana did, though. Ed Walsh also threw a no-hitter on August 27th, 1911, and had a career whip of 1.00, one on the dot. And he had a pretty dominant World Series performance, which and this was in his age 25 season. Two games, one complete game, 15 total innings, one earned run, 17 to 6 strikeout to walk ratio. So really good World Series from Ed Walsh there. Uh, moving forward to the full the four Hall of Famers on the runner-up Chicago Cubs three of whom are interrelated, so I'll save them for later. But we'll start with the one who's not related and one of my favorite old-time players ever, Mordecai Three Finger Brown, which Zach mentioned a little bit about as well. So Mordecai Brown got his nickname Three Finger because he lost parts of two fingers in a farm machine accident as a kid. Imagine that now. <laughs> but he's someone that anyone can really look up to. You guys know on a personal note, my background in special education, certainly another story for another time. But he was able to make the most out of his circumstances that took place and actually use this to learn how to grip a curveball. And he had a legitimately elite career. He had a 239 and 130 win loss record, a 2.06 career ERA, somehow played for seven different teams in an era that wasn't known for mobility. But he was inducted in 1949 by a veterans committee. And he did have a bit of a rough series this time around one and two record, 3.66 ERA in 19.2 total innings. So had a bit of a rough time, but going on to the three amigos as the world famous poem, baseball sad lexicon said, now I'm going to read off this poem for you. This was written on July 10th, 1910. Actually my grandfather's birthday. Wow. That I didn't realize that. Wow. But eight lines, 
these are the saddest of possible words, tinkers to Everest to chance. Trio of bear cubs and fleeter than birds, tinkers and Everest and chance. Ruthlessly prickling our gunfalon bubble, making a giant hit into a double. Words that are heavy with nothing but trouble, tinkers to Evers to chance. And that was by Franklin Pierce Adams. So it paid tribute to shortstop Joe Tinker, second baseman Johnny Evers, and first baseman Frank Chance. So this author was a Cubs fan and was a writer for a New York paper. And thanks to an article that his editor said was too short, he penned this poem to go with it. So the three of them definitely have a lot of critics as being Hall of Famers. Um, I'm actually in the minority. I think that two of them really belong in, but I'll get into that in a little bit. They struggled in the series, though, as a group. Chance went 5-for-21, Tinker hit 3-for-18, and Evers hit 3-for-20. In terms of the voting, like I said, I'd probably vote for two of the three, not that it really matters because they're already in, but I know that I've been critical of Saber Metrics at times, but Joe Tinker, whom a lot of people are against being in the Hall of Fame, led the league in defensive war six different times. Wow. I think that's significant, and it shows dominance on one side of the field. Is this, is this Mac coding war as a stat? <laughs> I know. I never Look do at it. this character and... development. <laughs> but going back to the Hall of Fame episode, I, I, I'm fine with war. I just don't like it being an arbitrary number. But when you're leading the league in it, that's more significant to me. So he led the league in defensive war six times. Shows dominance on one wow. side of the field, and especially at a position like shortstop. Back then, it was even more defensive-centric than it is now and a lot less offensive-heavy, so it can kind of excuse his low offensive numbers. Frank Chance hit two ninety six for his career. Low numbers outside of that, but he was a pl- he was the player-manager for this team, winning a World Series, and then he won a second World Series as player-manager. Spoiler alert, you'll see that later. And won two more pennants as a player-manager. So if you're... Making four World Series and winning two as a manager, period. I think you can argue that that's enough as a as a Hall of Famer. And then add that he was a player on the team as well. I see that kind of as a Gil Hodges type case where the whole baseball background has to be considered, and I would vote for that. The one who I wouldn't vote for, though, is Johnny Evers. And he has low offensive numbers. He has 1659 hits and a 690 career OPS. He did win an MVP. But out of the three, he'd be the one that I'd keep out. But I do understand why people, especially in that time period, wouldn't want to exclude him when the other two that he's so closely connected to are in. And we'll probably save it for next episode, but I see a lot of comparisons here to Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker or Albert Pujols and Yadier Molina, just kind of the combinations of teammates. Um, The key takeaways here is that there's a lot of narrative starting to form in baseball at this point, as we see where this poem was written four years after this series. And some challenges that had to be overcome, like we see with Mordecai Brown, which leads me into my main question here. Now, normally we would do a debate here, but this is not so much a debate, but really a tribute to Three Finger Brown and others in all sports who are able to overcome different challenges, whether it's addictions, whether it's disadvantages due to a disability, severe medical diagnosis, or anything else that would classify as a difficult circumstance for a professional athlete to overcome. So. I'm just going to name off some that stood out to me and then I'll open the floor to you guys, but sort of players who made lemon out of lemonade overcame a challenge, turned it into a positive and was able to have a really successful career um, overcoming those challenges. So we can't possibly list everyone uh, because there's so, so many examples. I have quite a few listed here, but 
Um, one that came up to me was that Alan Fanica had epilepsy and went on to become a pro football hall of famer. I'm just picturing that, like just being on a football field with that risk. I imagine having epilepsy yeah. and taking headshots every day, all day. Yeah. And he played center. Oh. Uh, definitely taking headshots all day, every day. <laughs> right. So that's something that, but he became a hall of famer. He was, I'm sorry, he was a guard, not a center, but still, um, he was a six time first team, all pro and nine time pro bowler made an all decade team. As an offensive lineman. Wow. And then you have Alonzo Mourning. He's a basketball Hall of Famer. Um, Zach, you might have yep, heard of him. He retired in 2003 because he had a deadly kidney disease. Yep. And he received a life-saving kidney transplant from his cousin. Wound up coming back. Won a title on the Miami Heat team that Shaq and Dwayne Wade were on together. And was third in blocks per game that season despite losing playing time playing behind Shaq wound up a basketball hall of famer and more than deservingly. So I believe he's a two-time defensive player of the year as well. Next one that came to mind, a bit more modern, Eric Berry, who was a superstar safety for the chiefs. Um, he was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma on December 8th, 2014. He went through chemo, was declared cancer free, played the 2015 season, then made the all pro team, Went on to make the all-decade team, and I will be the first person banging on the table when he's up for the Hall of Fame. Because I think that's just an incredible story. Diagnosed in December of 2014, played the 2015 season. And my two baseball-related ones, and these are all very different examples. This is the one that wasn't through um, a medical condition or anything like that. But Rick and Keel, I don't know if you guys have heard of him. Yep. So... I don't know if you, we grew up seeing him as an outfielder, but before that he was a pitcher. Yep. And this from 1999 to 2001 had difficulty with his control, was unable to throw strikes on a consistent basis after trying to regain his pitching form. What? That's an understatement. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm trying to be nice here. I'm trying to compliment the guy, but after trying to regain his pitching form in the minors, he got called up again, was unsuccessful there. And then he switched to the outfield in early 2005. Now, a lot of the factors that are distinguishing Shohei Otani from the rest of the group, um, those random stats that you hear and the joke is Tungsten Armo Doyle, Rick Ankeel had a lot of those factors as well. He was the first player after Babe Ruth to win at least 10 games as a pitcher and also hit at least 70 home runs. He's also the only player other than Ruth to start a postseason game as a pitcher and then hit a home run in the postseason as a position player. Wow. Which, hey, might be, I don't uh, think ever going to do that. Hopefully, do if the Angels can actually make the postseason. Yeah, if he gets traded, you mean? Yeah. Now, <laughs> granted, he didn't do it at the same time like Shohei's doing now or Babe Ruth did back then. But I really think there's something to admire about the work ethic of someone who was self-aware enough to realize that he wasn't cutting it as a pitcher to be nice, and he worked to become a major league level hitter instead. And listen, he didn't have the greatest career ever. He was a career 240 hitter, but the goal was to get to the majors, and that's what mattered. And, you know, for a guy who was making 400000 as a pitcher, he wound up making $8 million just between the years of 2009 and 2012. So this was life-changing, his decision that he made. So obviously for different reasons, but I also would be amiss if I didn't bring up Jim Abbott. Actually, we all can, know. can we go back to Ankill for a second? Sure. I think it's also worth noting within Keel, it's not like he just decided that I'm going to become a hitter and they said, okay, you're in, you're on the major league team. They sent him all the way down in the system. Mm-hmm. Like he yep. had to work his way up and prove that he could do it. They get all the way back up to major league ball and play. 
Yep, and there really was no medical ailment, just, you know, between the ears, if anything, just trying to get his command back, realizing that that wasn't working out, and went to be a hitter instead. There's, there's something to applaud with that. It's a level of work ethic that very few would have. Yeah. And, like I said, it'd be really amiss if we didn't bring up Jim Abbott here. Uh, obviously, we're all Yankee fans. Uh, he was born without a right hand, still had a 10-year career, threw a no-hitter on September 4th, 1993. Um a lot of people know him for his work with the Yankees, but he actually only played here for two seasons. Spent six seasons and finished third in a Cy Young voting with the Angels in 1991. Also played for the White Sox and Brewers, but just really an example of, you know, deciding to become a pitcher despite not having one of your hands. It's just unbelievable that he was able to have the career that he did. And it's just a testament to, you know, the work that he had in pursuing his dream. This so guy threw a no hitter with one hand. Nuts. I don't no think hitter. I don't think I don't think you're making a big enough deal out of it. This guy had one hand and he threw a <laughs> no hitter. He would throw oh, the know. ball with his uh, with his mitt tucked under his under yep. his arm, and then dig it out, put it on his hand, and and field ground balls. And this guy wasn't a bad fielder. We've seen worse fielders. It makes you think of all the guys who complain now about random things in sports, whether it's you know the platform that they have or. Anything else, you know, that they don't have the right players around him or the right team around him. This guy didn't have a hand. Yeah, yeah. And this is not like pitchers now where, you know, we have the universal DH now because guys would hurt themselves running the bases at half speed. Jamie Lowe. They pulled the hamstring. <laughs> this guy was pitching with one hand. You can't slander Chenwick Wong, though. Yes, he was made of glass, but <laughs> he was he was a good pitcher when he was healthy. 20 win seasons when he was healthy, yeah. Yep. He was good. He was nice little sinker there, but I'll open the floor up to Josh. And you know, I know he's got some hockey that he's been dying to let out on this podcast. So I'm oh, finally yeah. getting the opportunity to. Yes. Well, okay. I have I have two guys. The first guy, uh, as an Islander fan, you have to consider this guy, especially considering it wasn't that long ago. Is Robin Leonard? Man, King. I mean, I mean <laughs> he was he was on the Sabers. Yes, he was. Zach's a Sabers fan. Oh yeah, and he was. Not very good. No. Not that it was his fault because the Sabres were one yeah. of the worst teams in the league at that point. No one on our blue but, line. They had no one anywhere. They had Jack Eichel and that was it. <laughs> and he wanted out so bad. But some people knew that Leonard was battling things, but no one really knew to the extent of what was going on. And it ended up coming out in the offseason when his contract expired with Buffalo that he was battling alcoholism and he ended up going into the, the player substance abuse program uh, for the NHL and they also found out that he was diagnosed with being bipolar and a lot of people kind of went well I guess you know his career is over he's never coming back until the Islanders went out and they took a chance on the guy and he ends up going out and taking the chance that he's given and you know the guy the guy won the Manchester Trophy is the, the comeback player he was a top in the league in Vezina voting and and him and the backup Thomas Grice, they won the Jennings trophy for least amount of goals given up in the entire league. Now question for you, sure I'm actually about that because you know I'm a very casual hockey fan. I don't know a lot about this stuff, but was signing Leonard the work of Lou Lamarillo or Garth Snow? That was Lou Lamarillo. Okay, I was going to give you a joke about Snow Must Go, but I guess that it didn't work. Oh, well, worth a shot. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, Leonard's, Leonard's a huge a huge guy. I mean, 
a lot of people said this guy's career was over when these were the diagnoses that came out. And he came back and he became a really, really good player again. So the second guy that I like to talk about, and I don't, I don't think either of you guys probably heard about him. His name is Brian Berard. Have you heard? Have either of you guys heard of that guy? No. Nope. So he was a early two thousands, uh, sorry, nineteen ninety five draft pick, first overall draft pick by the Senators. He was a defenseman, and he was a really, really good defenseman. But he ended up requesting a trade from Ottawa because Ottawa didn't put him into the NHL lineup, they sent him back to junior. He ended up getting traded to who? The Islanders. And this guy had a really good career to start. He ended up winning the Calder in his rookie season. He's the best rookie in the league. Ended up beating out Jerome Aguinla that season. And, wow. you know, he ended up playing in the 1998 Winter Olympics for Team USA. I mean, this guy was going to be really, really good. And then the Islanders ended up trading him away in 1999. Typical. Typical. Typical of the Islanders. In, in the, dark, the dark times. That was the dark times. You don't talk about those times. No. But, you know, what happened to this guy is that in 2000, uh, they were playing a game, and he ended up taking a stick to the eye. Marion Hossa, on a follow-through, you know, future Hall of Famer Marion Hossa, yeah. hits him in the eye with a stick, and he ends up pretty much losing the eye. I mean, he had a retinal tear and a detached retina. And, you know, he ended up Coming back, they were able to, you know, he spent an entire season not playing, getting multiple eye surgeries, and they were able to get him to uh, 2,600 vision, which is not very good. That's really bad. Oh, man. And with <laughs> contact lenses, he was able to get to 2,400, which is apparently the league's minimum vision requirement. I didn't even know that was a thing. There's a minimum wow. vision requirement? But apparently so. That makes and sense. I would hope without without the contact lenses, he was legally blind in that eye. Jesus. And he ended up coming back, and he played like six more seasons. Granted, he wasn't the player he had been at the time, but, I mean, the guy was wiggly blind in one eye. That's pretty impressive, not having any depth vision. And This is hockey, man. Someone's going to come at you from one side, and you can barely see it or can't see it at all. That takes a lot of guts. Yeah, that's no, crazy. Absolutely. So, yeah, he ended up missing the entire 2000-2001 season, and two seasons later he ended up winning the Madison Trophy as well, just like Leonard did. Jesus. But I, I think this guy is that, – that's, you know, that's something. Because a oh, lot yeah. of guys have had careers ended with that. I mean, you know, Johnny Boychuk ended up taking – I think he was a stick in the eye as well, and, and it ended his career. Yeah. Another king. <laughs> Any Islander might go, king, king. Yeah. <laughs> Not Josh Bailey, though. No. Okay, no sorry, here right. we go. All right, Zach, you got anybody? Yeah, I know we're not an MMA podcast here, but for some reason I really thought about MMA guys, I just because it's more personal and not as much as a team sport, not just crediting anyone we mentioned before. That's just what came to my mind first. So, Mike, do you know who Francis Ngannou is at all? Yes. Okay. Uh, former UFC heavyweight world champ um, out due to contract negotiations, not because he lost the belt. He did right. not lose the belt. So um, this is just a story of a guy – coming from a big you know, place of poverty and just really fighting, fighting for his dream and what he wanted to do. Um, he grew up in Cameroon. He would walk, I think, I want to say it was six miles to school every day, so 12 miles in total. And then eventually he had to drop out of school to support his family. He was working in the sand mines in Cameroon, like 12, 18-hour shifts making you know, cents on the dollar. I don't know what, they're, what he was really getting paid, but obviously like nothing. 
and his father actually had a negative reputation as like a street fighter. So he took that and started watching MMA and said, I want to go box. Um, so he started training in Cameroon. And then when he turned 26, he actually wanted to, he defected. He left Cameroon, wanted to go to France to train because um, obviously they speak French in Cameroon. Um, so he tried to cross the border um, more. I think it was like three or four times he got caught. A few times was, you know, put back into Cameroon. He actually was jailed, spent two months in, uh, in Spain in prison. Um, but he made it. He made it there. And then he was homeless for a few years while training. Um, he met some training partners. They obviously didn't make him pay for the gym time. So he was sleeping in parking lots. Um, well, parking garages, like, you know, sleeping in those, training during the day, not making any money. And then, and then in the car. Yeah, not in a car, in parking lots. Oh, in the garage. lot. And yeah, he was yeah. homeless, dirt poor. Okay. And now, nine years later, he, you know, became the heavyweight champion of the UFC, one of the most desired stars in MMA right now. And as I mentioned before, his contract negotiations didn't go so well, so he's out. But he wants to go box, and there is a rumor that he's going to fight Tyson Fury, which would be insane. Um, but that's kind of died down a little bit. But yeah, just that's someone I thought about. And also to bring it back to Sherman's eye point, um, another MMA guy that just came up the top of my head, Mike. You know Bisping too, right? Michael Bisping. Yeah. Yep. You know he fought like the last two fights of his career with a glass eye and like fooled the commission, and they didn't know about it. I didn't know that. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, he would cheat on his vision tests. Um, he would literally walk up. There's a famous clip. He said he would walk up to the vision test, like memorize the you know the numbers, and before the optician came in, would go back and sit down and read it perfect. Um, so the last few fights of his career, Bisping fought with a glass eye, which is absolutely insane because you're getting punched in the damn face. I did not know that. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, so those are the two guys I just thought about. No, also Jake Peavy, now that I'm thinking about it, the former pitcher for the Padres was legally blind, but, but he had corrective lenses too. Mm-hmm. So without the lenses, he was blind. That's crazy. So, I didn't know that either. Quite a few, uh, you know, people with eye difficulties who were able to make it through. Yeah. Whether we were able to bring that up. And I kind of like doing that with, you know, we're definitely there's some room to debate on these pods, but I kind of like the idea of bringing some people up who – you know, had to overcome a lot. And I, like I said, I know there's a lot of people who we weren't able to really mention, but we'll kind of go through from there. And I think that concludes the World Series portion of this pod. And I I know we want to talk a little bit about the first couple weeks of the baseball season. Um, so for me, I went to the Mets home opener yesterday. I'm a Yankee fan, but I went mainly to see what was supposed to be Justin Verlander's debut. <laughs> Walter decided to make an announcement that Scherzer was going to start the opening day on the road and then Verlander was going to start at home. Magically, four days later, Verlander's hurt. Amazing. After tickets jumped up. And then, coincidentally, tickets cut in half. Then <laughs> the game rained out. So it was really awesome what the last week was. Uh, but I wound up just saying, you know what, even though I'm not feeling great, I'll go Friday. It's, you know spring break we'll have a good time uh went down there tried to get some pictures with you know some of the players a lot of guys actually signed but the way city field works is there's separate sections and then they open up the netting so i guessed wrong so i was in the middle one all the players went to the left one so senga signed a little bit got to see him warm up a little bit which was really cool alonzo signed a little bit 
and Lindor signed. He did like three on my side and then did the rest on the other. But he was the only one who actually did our side. And Eduardo Escobar did too. But it was just cool like, kind of being back in baseball. It was my first ever opening day, seeing the opening ceremonies. Um, what really stuck out to me was the most Mets celebration I've ever seen in my life. Oh, God. So they announced the whole team. They honored Bob Murphy. Really cool celebration uh, for the late Mets announcer. And at the very end of the ceremony, they go, fans, there's still one player left to introduce. And then they play the trumpets. And out comes Edwin Diaz on his crutches. Stop it. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Why? <laughs> like, having with the rest of the team. I get it having with the rest of the team. I get, you know, and he wasn't even using his crutches to walk up. I get having him. But to make it this big dramatic thing as if he's like a fallen soldier just did not sit well with me. I, I don't know why you have a problem with this. The guy's the guy's like the heartbeat of the team. Alonzo, Scherzer, yeah, Scherzer, uh, Scherzer doesn't Lindor, like anybody. No, no, no. Come on. No. No. I think of Pete as the face of the mess. You have to have, you have to have char- yeah, but he's like the biggest like character. And, and it's funny because at first I, I was thinking about that. I'm like trying to see where Diaz was because they were going mostly like it felt like they were going in number order, even though they weren't quite going in number order. And I was like, where's Diaz? But then as soon as the they said there's one player left to announce, I'm like, please tell me they're going to do like a video tribute to DeGrom or something. Oh, God. And it was then they heard the trumpets. And yeah, it was cool in the moment, but like. They want to compare this to Enter Sandman so bad, and it's I just not. don't see it. At it's all. not it. The game itself is a barn burner. Every, I don't. Uh, I don't think this was a bad thing. I don't think well, it was a bad thing. I, I don't. I don't think it's a bad thing. You know, especially especially you know looking around the league, like this is something you do as a front officer, as an owner, for your players to make the players happy, to make the fans happy. You know, you just you're just a, a crotchety old man on the outside looking in, going, "Ah, stupid." <laughs> How about you make the fans happy by not spending money on the gigantic, obnoxious scoreboard and signing Shohei Otani? Because Otani's not afraid to like, sign the guy. He's not not free agent and I heard 10 other fans complain the same thing right next to me. Who are well, how are you supposed to sign a guy who's not a free agent yet? <laughs> but then why are you spending money on the scoreboard? Do you think Cohen, Cohen has unlimited yeah. pockets? It's Daddy Steve. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> what does the scoreboard do? It's obnoxious. It's so Mets. I don't and like it. There's like four teams that built new scoreboards. Yeah, the Phillies season. did it's as not well. Not like too. they're the only ones. It's so Mets. Like you didn't need to. It was fine. It was normal. Yeah, and they also they also changed the outfield fence dimensions. IMAX theater in center field. It's it's atrocious. But um, the Cohen game wants little... to spend money. Like Cohen. Yeah, exactly. Money. Cohen's gonna do what he wants. That's fair. This is, this I, mean, is I guess the got money saved up from Korea yeah. that he didn't have to use. There you go. <laughs> but how about we put it to a retractable roof so that we don't have the game postponed? That's a little unrealistic. That would yeah, take years. Really Why? Just put it up. It's not that hard. Give enough money and you it'll happen. You can't do it in the offseason. You'd have to move somewhere. Okay. Do it. Make it happen. You're Steve Cohen. Make it happen. Going on to the game itself, before I was rudely interrupted, um... The game itself felt like a barn burner. I leave at 6 nothing. Edward Cabrera had seven walks in 2.2 innings. Starling Marte hit a home run. That was nice. Daniel Vogelbach had to run out a ground ball where the first baseman had no clue where he was supposed oh, to be. Oh, just like the ad for the, you know, stolen oh. base. 
He runs. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. The big bases didn't even matter there. It was just the first baseman just ran in the other direction. It was like a glitch in the show. But <laughs> um, but I leave at 6 nothing. I'm going to walk 20 minutes to my car. Speaking of which, I found a little nice parking garage that's $5 instead of paying 40 at City Field. Oh. It's not a 15-minute walk. Not too bad. Um, but as I'm walking to the car, I hear crack. Three-run shot for the Marlins becomes 6-3. I'm like, okay, the Mets are going to blow this, and it's going to be hysterical, but I'm already out, so I'll just laugh on the way home. <laughs> then Lindor and Alonzo hit back-to-back home runs. So what was really a pretty boring game, because it was just all walks over and over again, the Marlins gave up like 12 walks, became back-to-back home runs in the ninth and – I'm sorry, bottom of the eighth, and I missed it all. So that was wonderful. That, missing back-to-back home really runs at, at City Field. Hmm. Yeah. This reminds me of something. What? <laughs> Missing back-to-back home runs at City Field. This reminds oh, me. Oh yeah, I do remember that. Let's not get into that one. <laughs> Let, let's not go down that. Let's path. not put our friend on blast. No, no, no. I'm that not. wasn't my fault. That was uh, City Field's fault. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah, you know, just a little bit of incompetence. Want to go to the diner? Yeah, let's go to the diner. But um, yeah. So Josh, I'll pass it on to you. I just had to get that out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot to talk about here. I mean, the Rays have not lost a game yet. Nope. Which, I, I don't know. I, I I guess I must have doubted them again because yep. their their atrocious roster just doesn't lose. <laughs> Old you. They're analytics, man. I don't know how. Uh, I don't know else. how. You know, the Yankees, Yankees are moment. disappointing as usual. Per usual. Per usual. You know, they have a couple good pitchers, and then there's Clark Schmidt, who should be blasted <laughs> to the moon. <laughs> but we have two, two terrible starts. See the thing is, is that Volpe, even if he doesn't do anything, he still plays good defense. He does. Not like IKF, where if he I like doesn't hit, he can't, also can't field. Yeah, you know, Donaldson well, got hurt the other day. I know. Pulled a hammy jogging the first base. Yep. And that's usual. my shot at Volpe. I like Volpe. It's just he's not going to magically solve all of our problems. No, their problem is and always pitching. was pitching. Right. And they went out and got all these guys, and they're all hurt. Yep. Exactly. And you're telling me that they couldn't have gone and signed Trevor Bauer? Dude, I know. I go on a rant for that forever. That guy's a big loss for any of those major league teams not picking up. But the league minimum, you pay him half a million dollars, and it's a win-win situation. No yeah. loss there. But instead, I'm going to watch Clark Schmidt start. Even though we have Johnny Brito that threw five-inning shutout. But no, let's not let's not use him. No, let, let's continue yeah. to watch Clark Schmidt. Minor league options. trash. <laughs> disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. And listen, I, I can understand if it was character-related, but you can't say it's character-related when you have Domingo Herman on the team. Yeah, yeah it's just, exactly. It's just like, so pick a side. Which is it? I saw something that um, any any like any team should have picked up Bauer, even if you're the A's. You pick up Bauer, you see how he does, and if he performs well, you trade him at the deadline because you're the A's and you want assets, right? So All I, these teams I, are yeah. afraid of publicity. They're yeah. all afraid of the negative press. But yet we'll have Domingo Herman. No, exactly. And Chapman's still in the Royals. The Chapman. Yeah. But, okay, changing topics. To me, one of the surprise teams here is the Cardinals being 2-5. and five. I thought this team was really five. good. I didn't even know Yeah, that. I mean, I mean grant, granted, the two teams they've played so far have been the Blue Jays and the Braves, and they got swept by the Braves, but that wow. team being 2-5 and five is kind of interesting, especially when the Pirates are 5-2. and two. Granted, the Pirates have played two atrocious teams. Yeah, they'll fall off. Don't worry about but, that. Yeah, I mean it's an it's an early start to the season, but it's just interesting to see these things early on. Yeah, yeah, they'll they'll all work itself out. I think. Then again, 
Brian Reynolds batting like 500 for the Pirates with like four home runs in the first. Oh, he's a man on a mission. He wants to get off that team. I can't believe they didn't trade him already. Yeah. (laughs) He should be a Yankee. He should. I'm fine with that. Instead, instead I'm watching Aaron Hicks get booed. I want to play. I want to start, guys. I don't get it. What's my role on this team? I want you to start too, Aaron, on the on Scranton Wilkes. I'd rather him start on a different team. Yeah, start on the Long Island Ducks with Daniel Murphy and Ruben Tejada. Yeah, yeah. God, I I just there, there's ways to like conduct yourself and, and yep, the things that he's doing just are not it. Why? And then when he does get the opportunities to play, it's terrible. You know, I mean, he the starting left field job was in his hands at the beginning of spring training. And he can't catch fly balls. No, he blew it. Can't he play can't defense hit. anymore. He bats one thirty, and now he can't play defense. So, what, what's what's the point? And then they're making statements about, oh, the Yankees fans are booing. I'm like, that's not right. Like, it's like, yeah, it is right. Good, yeah. boom, boom, harder. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> yeah, they went out, and that. we all went. Why did the Yankees go sign Franchi Cordero? And let me tell you, this guy just passed Hicks in the depth chart in about seven seconds. Oh yeah, you're on shot. <laughs> He hit one home run, and that's it. That's <laughs> one thing that I'll say as a Knicks fan, and like, as much as we hate Porzingis now for wanting a trade, he got booed on draft night, and he said, I'm going to turn those boos into cheers, and he did. Mm-hmm. He turned them back into boos again when he demanded to leave. Well, yes. But he turned those boos into cheers. That's the attitude that New York athletes got to have, and you there's need. a reason why people in New York get that extra credit, because they have to deal with us. They earn that when they deal with us. It's it's the trade off for getting the credit in New York. And he's you under contract until what twenty twenty five, right? I think. Yeah, it's 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 like I'm watching Josh Bell on the Islanders. The guy the guy played well, and then in a contract year he played incredible. Got his contract, fell off the face of the earth. Yep. Well, thing that stood out to me are. Meredith still ringing true, but just not to the extent that I thought they would be. So, obviously, uh, I'm a Yankees fan, but I live in Philly, so I follow the Phillies a little bit here. Um, <laughs> a little? Oh, yes. Big time Phillies fan right here. Big knock on the Phillies. They have no bullpen. And, obviously, again, I know that's a thing. They shorted up, though. They got Kimberly, They got a few other guys in there. But oh my, Kimberly's like 45. I know. But, oh, my God, dude. These scores against Texas, I think – they gave up 11 runs the first day and then, like, 16 the next game. Like, absurd. Like, absurd amounts of runs. And then... Playing whack-a-mole. Yeah, it's nuts. And they were winning that first game, too. I think, like, 7 nothing, And then they gave up a nine, a 9 spot. 9 runs in one inning. Like, truly ridiculous in 2023 baseball to be doing that kind of stuff. Um, also, another thing I found funny was that DeGrom pitched. They actually got to DeGrom, the Phils, but DeGrom had run support. So, um, you know, he's doing really oh, well in Texas. He's not used to that. No, he's not used to that at all. <laughs> hey, four and three Rangers. Tell them, they're coming. They're going to fall off. Simeon's not going to be who you think he is, I'm telling you. It's okay. I just think it's mm-hmm. hilarious that how bad the Phillies are this year. And I don't think yeah. they're going to – I think they'll get a little bit better, but there's no way – this team's not making the playoffs. They, they got lucky, right. the pitching, they got lucky yeah. to get into the playoffs the first time last year, and they just got hot at the right time. They were not and never were supposed to be in the playoffs. Yeah, they really got to, you know, change something in that bullpen and Bryce has to come back and put out an MVP second half for them to do anything, I feel like. I mean, yeah. The Phillies are like the Yankees. They have no pitcher. Zero. None. Zero. Yeah. Except I would I would argue the Phillies pitching is worse than the Yankees. Oh, it is. 
because you got, um, I mean, Garrett Cole is better than Nola and Wheeler, in my opinion. So, Red Sox, Red Sox are in last place, as, as we expected, as we like, yeah. as we like to see. We like to see that. I'll yeah, say Duvall's played really well. That a lot in the last episode. <laughs> no, I mean everything else is pretty much as it should be. Yeah, Astros are good. I mean, we knew that. Like same Astros, old, same three old. and five. <clears throat> Second to last place in the division. <clears throat> Athletics are still in last. Per usual. Pretty much what we expected. Yeah, Angels blowing leads per usual. My favorite. Angels, Miami Angels Marlins in third place despite not having a major league team. Well, that's the Phillies' fault. They should be there. <laughs> I mean, granted, granted, the teams below them are the Phillies and the uh, the Nationals, who also don't have major league teams. Yeah, the Nationals will not be doing anything. Oh, you know what we have to talk about? Uh, did you see uh, on Twitter like two days ago? Oh yes, um, yep. I know you're the guy, the guy that uh, Fernando Tatis had an absolute nuke for some minor league minor league where he had this diamond. And the guy basically, and they were saying, this guy is going to tell his friends for the rest of his life how Fernando Tatis had an absolute nuke off of him. And this guy responded on Twitter. Cheater. Cheater <laughs> hits home run off minor leaguer while on rehab assignment yeah. for steroids. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I thought that was soft. So did I. Like, I thought up. it was hilarious. It was funny, but also like, dude, you're in the minor leagues. He's Tatis. He's better like, than you. What, know your dude. role. Cut yeah. your mouth. I I know I I think that's hilarious. I I think that's just just funny because he's right. He's absolutely right. Well, don't worry. He doesn't start making twenty five uh twenty million until twenty twenty five. Yeah, yeah. Almost and he doesn't start making twenty five million until twenty twenty seven. And they're gonna want to. And he doesn't start making thirty six million until twenty twenty nine. How's that Juan Soto contract looking? <laughs> I still like him. No, I know they're gonna have to pay him. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean. He's he's struggling this year though. I hope he bounces back. He should be. He's a good enough player. And a partner should want him paid Cronenworth for like eight years too. He's a solid player though. I like him. Yes, he he's a good yeah role player. He's like an Aaron Hicks, except Hicks actually good. good when he was good. When yeah. he was good. When Hicks was good. <laughs> Cronenworth yeah. was bad. He was a good defensive fielder and he would hit sometimes. Yeah, but he wasn't like a liability. Like Hicks is now a liability. Yes, Hicks is the Josh Bailey of uh, of, of the New York Yankees. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody wants the guy to just go away. All right, and that concludes our fifth, I guess now, yeah, fifth episode of Championship or Bust. Thank you guys for joining us, and hope that you enjoy the next couple weeks. We'll be coming at you soon with nineteen oh seven. Take care. Have a good one. Peace. Peace.